If you wanted to build a machine learning model to understand human health, where would you get the data? A hospital database would be useful, but privacy laws make it difficult to disclose that patient data to the public. In order to publicize the data safely, you would have to anonymize it so that a patient's identity could not be derived from the data about that patient, and true anonymization is notoriously difficult. In every industry where privacy is a concern, there is a similar challenge. If there's no place with public data sets, there's no place where the machines can go to learn. The possible machine learning algorithms that we can build are limited by the data sets that are available. Oren Hoffman started his company SafeGraph to unlock data sets so that machine learning algorithms can learn from those data sets. In this episode, we talk about the machine learning landscape in both the short and the long-term time horizons. We also discussed some of Oren's strategies for building companies, which have been crucial for me in thinking about how to build software engineering daily. I talked to Oren a couple times prior to starting this podcast, and those conversations were very fruitful in terms of deciding how to go about building this podcast. So thanks to Oren, and I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. Hoffman is the CEO of SafeGraph. Oren, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. We've had several shows recently about machine learning where we explored the idea that the quality of machine learning models is often proportional to the amount of data that are used to build that model. Explain why that is. Well, there's been a lot of studies where, depending on the amount of data that you have, different algorithms are going to win. And so you can have a scenario where you've got, let's say, six different algorithms. And you can have, let's say, you've got a thousand data sets labeled, a million, 10 million, billion, you know, et cetera. And literally, as those data sets grow, you'll see different algorithms winning out. I've seen many scenarios where like the worst algorithm in the thousand set becomes the best one Mm. in the trillion set Mm. or something. And so it's really hard to know which is the best algorithm unless you have a really big set. Hmm. Moore's Law has given us consistent advancements in technology for a long time. Obviously suggests that transistor density is what defines the power of our computers. But at this point, we know how to distribute machine learning jobs across multiple machines really efficiently. So in some sense... Moore's law doesn't inhibit machine learning. And machine learning is so flexible that it is increasingly defining how our society organizes, how productive we are. Do you think that we've moved beyond a place where the hardware developments are the bottleneck and now it's the quality of our machine learning models that are the limiting reagent? I think in every every year could be different. So it's probably that's probably true today, like in 2017. And so I can right now it's probably the quality of the data that's important. We can we can dive in a little bit more about like where we've seen if if we kind of look at the history of of machine learning, like if you think of the 90s, it was chess was this great place where machine learning just did an incredible job in the 90s. And partially that's cuz the data was available. You know, the average chess game most of the major chess games, the data is available for the last 150 years. So you just have all those games. 
you know, thousands, thousands, millions of games, you have this data available, and then the data is not very big. Like the average chess game has maybe 40 moves or something, so it's not very big. And then the notation is standardized across geographies, across everything. So that was really, really great. And then that moved to like the late 90s to the stock market. In the stock market, we have this pricing data, which is tied to a ticker, which, you know, by second, we have price by second or price by time. Maybe, you know, 100 years ago, it wasn't by second, but it was price by day. But we still have this price by time for a very long period of time, for, you know, 100 years or so. And so, and that data is available, it's labeled, it's easy to use. It wasn't free like the chess data, but it's relatively low cost, easy to get. So lots of people were able to get that data and start doing it. And I think we could look at where the data is available as to where the innovations are going to come in. Mm. So like an area I think we won't have an innovation in for a long time is nutrition. We have very little data about like what the average person eats by time and, and, then, and then how that relates to outcomes in their life. Mm. Also, this is very hard to do because it's longitudinal. And so it's, it's a very difficult data. So this is why like every three years there's a complete new fad in nutrition, which is backed up by like quote unquote science. And so, you know, margarine was great when I was growing up. Now it's considered really terrible. Now everyone wants to have a high fat type of thing. Who knows what's going to be in the future? And so I think as we see this data go in, it could change. Now, now I think chips are valuable and we shouldn't discount chips. So if we've seen this like tensor processing unit that Google uses for their AlphaGo stuff that they're doing. So their TPU chip is pretty interesting. And so I think we have these like ASIC chips that are going to be very interesting in machine learning. They're going to have like specific jobs that they're going to be focused on. Um, and they probably will have quite a bit of advantages mm. to using these, these chips in the future. But we still need the underlying data. Like having these chips without the underlying data, like I don't think these chips are going to help us solve nutrition. Right. Okay, so at SafeGraph, you are working on democratizing this data for machine learning. That's right. Explain what that means. Well, the core goal is to be able to, if you're, if you're actually doing machine learning, is to be able to get access to really great data. And so that data, first of all, has to be data, like, it's hard to get access to it in the first place. Usually it's either very expensive or you have to do all these BD deals to do it. And so data should be relatively low cost, easy to get. It also should be very clean and labeled and easy to use. So you shouldn't have to spend, once you get the data, then you shouldn't have to spend all this time then having to deal with it. Like it should just be like, you should be able to deal with it immediately. Uh, and then it should be correct. So the problem with most data sets out there is that a large portion of the data is incorrect and it has errors, it has all these other problems. So you should believe that the data is true. Now, of course, data was never 100% true. But you should believe that it's very close to 100% true. Mm. Certainly, if data is 50% true or less, this is really bad. Mm. And there's a lot, uh, you know, in, in depending on what you're doing, if it's below 90% true, it could be very bad, or below 99% true, it could be very bad. So you need to understand, you know, what the false positives and false negatives are on that data, and have confidence that those false positives and false negatives that are advertised are actually correct. Mm. And then ultimately. You don't want to actually have to stand the data up. So ultimately, it'd be great if there was someone else who stood the data up. You could just run your algorithms on it. And then if the data is dealing with people, there's lots of privacy issues. 
And so if you're a machine learning company, you might not want to become a privacy expert as well. So hopefully they can take that burden on as well. So there could be a lot of different things that you'd want some sort of data entity to help you with if you're doing machine learning. Once you have these data sets acquired, what's the best way to expose them to machine learning programmers? Is there an API that you have in mind for what is the best way to share a data set? Well, it's interesting. It's still some things like we're personally trying to figure out. Mm. But like if you have an algorithm, the long-term goal would be if you could put your algorithm in a box so that no one could see that algorithm and then run it on a data set that's already stood up somewhere so you don't have to go stand it up and you and you, maybe you, didn't, you don't necessarily see the underlying data, but your algorithm can get access to the underlying data. Mm. This would be like the ultimate point because now you can have really sensitive data that could be that you could use your algorithm on that maybe they would never want anyone looking at the underlying data. And then you could have your algorithm in a box and no one could see your underlying algorithm. Imagine if like you could run your underlying algorithm on Medicare patient data or something like that. Now obviously this is super sensitive data, so like it w- you would never want a scenario where like someone could actually see the underlying data. But maybe if you could run an algorithm where you couldn't see the underlying data, but you could actually just run it on the data, you could learn a lot of things and maybe help a lot of people out. Maybe help people understand like what treatments to get, et cetera. So this could be something that could be really, really cool. I don't mm. think we're going to be there anytime soon. <laughs> so certainly not 2017 is, is when we're going to be able to do this type of thing. I could imagine in the next five years where this, this would exist. And then I could see a lot of really interesting things happening when this exists. Well, it's a regulatory bottleneck. It's not a technological bottleneck because you can very easily imagine throwing your algorithm in a Docker container, sending it to SafeGraph, having it run on Medicare data, but the regulatory burden to getting that Medicare data is pretty onerous at this point. Well, there's a technology burden as well, because to go through the regulatory burden, you have to prove that someone couldn't see the underlying data. Okay. Right? So there is a technology burden. That that definitely has to be solved first before you can go through the regulatory burden. But Mm. but certainly both exist. Mm. Safety refers to privacy in this instance, in SafeGraph? Well, in SafeGraph, I mean, our goal is to graph lots of data sets together mm. to make it really interesting. And then it's really important that these data sets are kept safe. So there, there's a privacy component to that if you're dealing with data about people. But also, if the data has an underlying owner, they're worried about data leakage. Sometimes mm. the data, you know, it, you know, the security is really important, et cetera. And so making sure data is kept in a very safe way is, is really important. At my last company, we managed the internal databases consumer databases for most of the biggest companies in the world. And so we both had a privacy burden of making sure that we handled the data in an appropriate way. And then we also had a security burden because you wouldn't want a scenario where someone's data, we handled large banks and we handled large retailers and telcos, et cetera, where if their data got out in the wild, this could be a a huge problem to the underlying company that owned that data. From what I see, the way that you think about company building is that you architect a pretty big vision and then you define a sequence of short-term and longer-term profit centers that can be definitively reached along the path towards getting to that vision. And you're talking about some problems that are going to be difficult to overcome in a visible time frame. 
have you thought about like what are the shorter term and what are the midterm profit centers that you might get to with SafeGraph? Yeah, so I don't, by the way, like my advice to entrepreneurs isn't necessarily like to define a massive problem. Mm. And so I don't think that is necessary. I think that's helpful. I think it's super helpful for recruiting talented people to join your company and it may be helpful for raising money, et cetera. But I, I don't think that's a necessity. Hmm. And sometimes it can be a huge distraction to have a really big vision. And so I think the most important thing is to define the small vision, the area that you're going to do really well and that you're going to excel in. And so I think that that's really important is to figure out what's your niche and that you're going to dominate. I think too often people have just the very large vision, then they have tons of competitors who are competing with them in that really large vision. And this becomes a, a very hard game to win when you have like all these really, really smart competitors doing exactly what you're doing. And so what you want to do is go after a relatively small market where there is a too high of a burden for lots of other people to go after that same market. Let's say that market is $10 million or something like that. It wouldn't make sense for lots of really smart people to go after this small market. And then you could do really well in that market. And then the question is like, as an entrepreneur, are you smart enough to move into adjacent markets when that market is tapped out? When you're no longer growing at 100% year over year, are you smart enough to move to other markets? And then this is also true for a funder. I think for venture capitalists or other types of funders, investors, I think they, they care about total addressable market too much and they spend too much time thinking about it. What they should be thinking about more is, you know, when this company hits a wall where they can't grow at 100% year over year in this particular market, is this team smart enough and are they adept enough to move into adjacent markets where they can keep growing? And so evaluating that team is really, really important rather than evaluating the market. talking about SafeGraph specifically, the steps to building the SafeGraph platform are one, acquire the data, two, host the data, three, prepare the data, four, understand data privacy. I know that you are a fan of doing things serially rather than in parallel, and this seems like a serialized strategy. From a management perspective, are you thinking about all four of these things right now and delegating specific people or specific teams to each of these serialized tasks? Or are you having the whole company think about each of these problems? Is it still kind of in the ideation step where everybody is working on all four steps? Well, say for us, 13 people as of today and mostly software engineers. And so I think when you're when you're a relatively small company, you really have to I think I think it's true when you're at any stage of company, whether you're a one person company or a million person company, you need to really prioritize and really, really figure out what are you good at, what are you gonna focus on, and get everyone focused on a very small number of things and really make sure you excel at those things. And so it's important to figure out what those things are. I don't think you have to optimize always too much to figure out what those are. It's just important that you do have things that you are focused on. Mm. What you don't want to be doing is lots of things. Right. And so you want to figure out, let's say there's like a hundred important things to do. You know, you don't have to spend like too much time optimizing on like the two of the hundred things that are the most important thing. 
because you could probably spend just a little bit of time like winning down the 100 to 20 mm. and then like picking randomly out of the 20 is probably like okay i mean or like <laughs> you go with your gut or whatever you're going to do mm -hmm. But what's most important is that you're, that you're relatively focused. And this is like really hard for especially entrepreneurial people to do because there's just so many opportunities that they see and they're constantly seeing all these like really interesting things. And you can always like rationalize stuff. And so everybody I know, including myself, struggles with this. It's a constant struggle to deal with this. Usually you have like way too many ideas, not too <laughs> few ideas. You could do too many things. And I think this is true in life. I think people in life should literally take things off the table. I think they should they should actually declare to themselves and their friends that they will never do something. <laughs> Not that they're like going to do it later. They should declare they will never do it. <laughs> so I'll give you my like life example, which is like I've always wanted to write a novel. This is like always something in the back of my mind. Like since I could remember since I was really young, I've always really wanted a novel. A lot of people have this thing. And not that long ago, a few years ago, I just declared to myself, I will never write a novel. <laughs> it's just never going to happen. Like, I just think it's never going to be in my top 10 things to do. It's always been in my top 50 things. It's never going to be in my top 10. And therefore, like, it's never going to, do, never going to get done. Now, it doesn't mean I can't change my mind 20 years from now. And maybe I do change my mind and maybe I end up writing that novel 20 years from now. But I've taken it out of my mind as a thing that I like hope I'm going to do one day as some sort of like bucket list thing. I've like moved, removed it from my mind and that frees my mind to now focus on the most important things. Hmm. So I have a segue to my next question that plays off of that novel. So there's a platform now called Book in a Box where you basically pay them 15K they send somebody to interview you about what book you want to write. And yeah. then you basically outsource a lot of the work that goes into writing a novel. So we sometimes see these. I think that's probably for nonfiction rather than fiction. Or, or I think they have both. They do? Okay. I think they oh, have cool. both. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's kind of interesting. But the, that's the, cool. the reason I say that as a segue is you have written about how the necessary size of employees in a company is shrinking because we have these products like Twilio and Heroku and Asana and yep. these amazing SaaS tools. I mean, not to mention more open-ended outsourcing tools like Upwork and yep. Fiverr that are actually pretty good for if you want to do outsourcing because they yeah, have an Or Uber. even Mechanical Turk or Crowdflower or whatever. Exactly. Yep. These things are getting better. And this is a pressure to have a smaller workforce, at least early on, because if you can just outsource these tasks to services that do it, or if you can outsource it to contractors that you don't have to give equity to, for example, and they are incentivized to do a really good job because they have some star rating system, it just reduces the amount of workforce that you absolutely need. How has your management strategy changed in the era of the smaller workforce? I think you should be doing every, if you're a company, you should be doing everything possible to think about how to keep your workforce smaller rather than how to make your workforce bigger. The best run companies in the world, well, let's say the worst run companies in the world have some sort of like N squared communication challenges, right? Where N is like the number of employees. The best run companies in the world maybe have like N over three, right? That's the best is that N over three. And so even in like the best case scenario, as you increase your number of employees, you do you have linear scale challenges. It's never like there's not an asymptote that happens as you as you scale. So you should be doing everything possible 
to eliminate these communication challenges. And in this world where things are moving really, really, really fast, having communication challenges is a much bigger burden than it used to be because you're competing with very nimble, very fast-moving organizations. And so you want to be able to communicate in your company really, really, really quickly. And so there's a couple different ways you can, you can design your company. One is you can design your company in like pods. And so I think this is a really smart, like innovative way to design your company. So this is the Amazon, like two pizzas idea where you're designing your companies in pods and you're essentially creating these APIs of pods and where they're interacting each other in APIs. And you could do this with software developers, but you could do this in lots of other types of ways. And I think that can work really, really well. And certainly as you scale, it's something that you should be thinking about. The other thing you could do as a company is you could just figure out, like you can almost redefine what your company is. So even if your company has like 200,000 people that work for it, you could almost redefine it like, okay, corporate has these 30 people here and then we're going to just be like capital allocators and we're almost going to pretend sure. that these are different right this is like the berkshire hathaway model alphabet right yeah or alphabet is kind of starting to get like that as well they're not there yet but i think they're they're moving in that direction and i think that's really really that can be really smart and they're all and they're doing this all for the same reason which is okay if we have this small number of folks we can communicate really really quickly and then we can just do this capital allocation problem but of course, the best case scenario is to remain small so you never have this type of thing. And, and I think this is using the services that you mentioned, whatever, it's Crowdflower, Heroku, AWS, Google Compute, you, you go down the list, mm-hmm. Twilio, all these like really great Sangrid, these great API services out there. You don't have to build something if somebody else has something. Now, usually if you build it, it will be better for you. And sometimes it'll be actually more cost effective for you to mm-hmm. build it. But there's this opportunity cost of building it, which means you're not going to do something else or you're going to have to grow in size, which is quite difficult. And by the way, even if you want to grow in size, it doesn't mean you can. Right? There's this very difficult burden of recruiting really talented people. It's really hard to find super talented people. And it's unclear once you find them that they'll want to join you. And so it takes a lot of time recruiting. I know lots of companies where the average software engineer spends 25 to 35% of their time actually doing interviews and recruiting. That comes in like chunky places too. So it could end up being like 50% of a degradation to their actual output by doing all this recruiting. If you can cut the recruit time of the average software engineer to 10% or maybe even 0%, now you've massively increased their productivity. And while some software engineers love recruiting, quite a few software engineers actually don't <laughs> like recruiting. It's, it, it becomes this huge you know, issue, et cetera. And so you want to be doing everything possible to focus on actually doing what you can do great as a company and not having to like deal with all these like growth issues that come with companies. Mm. As someone who's building a marketplace for machine learning data, to what degree do you feel obligated to have a technical understanding of how machine learning algorithms work? Because I host a podcast about software engineering. A lot of the shows are about machine learning. I don't have an in-depth understanding of how a lot of these things work. A lot of the people that I interview do, and I know the words that I can use to get out the necessary information that I need, but I don't find myself going deep into 
how deep learning works, for example. So to what degree do you feel that is something that you need to focus? I mean, to your point about focus. Well, I mean, that's on my list and I haven't eliminated it like the novel yet, <laughs> but I also, like you, haven't been able to spend as much time as I would like on it. And so you know, we have a lot of really talented people at SafeGraph that, that do have a really good understanding of machine learning and do spend a lot of time machine learning. As a former software engineer, but not, not an active current one, I have not had the ability to spend as much time on it as I would like. And I, of course, whenever people say this thing that I won't have the as much, I won't have as much time. And like, it really means I don't choose to do That's it. That's right. Yeah. Right. It means I'm choosing to do something right. else. I'm either choosing to read about when yeah. I have reading time, or choose to read about something else, or I choose to spend time of with my kids, or, or whatever it might be. I right? make the same decision. Yeah. And so these are always difficult things. I'm never sure if I'm making the right decision or not. Whenever you're doing time allocation, you almost certainly aren't doing what's optimal. If you take a meeting with somebody, it might turn out to be good, it might not. Sometimes you actually won't ever know if it was good or not. And sometimes you may not know for 20, 30 years whether something was good. And if you don't take it, you'll never know. That's right. right? And so these are always hard things to understand from like a time allocation thing. I think it is good to spend time understanding your time allocation. But of course, if you spend too much time understanding your time allocation, then you don't have time to do other things. So all of these things are difficult decisions to figure out. Mm. I first met you through Quora. You were on my podcast, the Quoracast, and I was intrigued because your writing tends towards what you call non-obvious ideas. What is a non-obvious belief that you have about machine learning? Good question. I don't know that I have anything like super non-obvious about it. You know, my core belief that data is like way more important than most people think is like now actually relatively obvious. I think a lot of other people believe that. Mm -hmm. But I think it is important to understand things like there are often things that you end up believing in that other people don't believe in. And then it's under, it, I think that those are really important beliefs to have and then to always check yourself on them. I mm -hmm. think if like if you believe something that everyone else believes, you need to check yourself on that. And if you believe in something that like very few other people believe, you also need to check yourself on that. And so whenever I find myself believing everything that everyone around me believes, I like try to really question it. And you can't question everything. So like I don't spend a lot of time questioning whether the world is round and I don't actually really know if the world's round. <laughs> I don't like spend time like questioning like if we fake the moon landing or something like that. Like I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that we landed on the moon, right? So but like I can't prove it. I wasn't there. I wasn't even alive in 1969. And so you can't question every single belief, but like if you find yourself believing something with high certainty, like, you know, yesterday was the Super Bowl. If you find yourself believing, like, in the second quarter with high certainty that the Falcons were going to win and you were, like, 100% sure, like, this is probably something you should probably check yourself. Like, are you, do you believe it because everyone else is around? Or you believe it because of these are just, like, certain pattern matching that you've done before, etc.? Certainly, they're probably, like, more likely to win at that point, but they probably weren't, like, 100% likely to win. Hmm. It certainly seems like we are moving towards a place where more people are picking up non-obvious ideas, even non-obvious ideas, both that are productive to pick up and ones that are on the extremes. I don't know if this is Twitter or other social networks 
presenting this to me, and maybe this has always been the case that people are picking up things like Pizzagate or faking the moon landing and, and running with it. Does it feel like there is a degree of societal variance that increases dangerously when people pick up non-obvious ideas? Because obviously I sympathize with you and I'm, yeah. I find it very productive to pick up non-obvious ideas and run with them to a safe degree, but it seems like there is an atmosphere, whether it's just the way that the internet is projecting this to me or, or if it's real, that many people are kind of losing a shared sense of reality. Like whether that's a good thing or not, I'm not entirely sure, but it certainly feels like something's in the air. I don't know if you agree with me or and to what degree do you think that's dangerous? Well, I'm not sure that, I do think there's probably more social conformity today than there was in the past. I think it's probably, I still think we're kind of on the extreme end of social conformity hmm. of like certain, especially like if you think of like, I don't know that much about society. So, you know, I, I don't know as much about politics, but if you think about like business and stuff, I think like probably like too often, like people want to fund things that everybody else wants to fund. Oh yeah. And too often people will say, okay, like, you know, ad tech is really bad. Right. Like we shouldn't go fund that. And it's just like, everyone just repeats it blindly, but they don't actually like go in and really kind of dive in as to like, okay, what's good about it? What's bad? There's certainly been tons of like really great exits in ad tech. So, okay, there's like a lot of data that it's good. So there are some people saying it's bad. Okay, well, why are they saying it's bad? Really diving into it. Yeah. And I think too often people are just like very willing to to conform to some sort of like basic thinking. I also think people are, there's a lot of pushback on people when they say things that are even like somewhat controversial. For sure. Certainly in business, that's the case. And so it just causes people not to say things that are controversial. Jessica Livingston, who is one of the founders of Y Combinator, I think one of the really, really smart minds, penned a really interesting piece about a month ago about, you know, essentially like some of the biggest problems she believes is that is people not saying things because they're worried about backlash or, you know, et cetera. And I have a lot of friends that before they say anything interesting, they'll spend, you know, anywhere between like three to six months testing it on their closest friends, people who won't judge them, et cetera. For sure. They'll be tweaking it, et cetera, before they're willing to say it in public. And sometimes this is good because you certainly don't want to say things that can like radically offend people, et cetera. And so it sometimes is good. But then of course this could be bad because this like self-censorship could mean a lot of new ideas aren't coming out right. into the wild and, and a lot of things aren't being shared, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's the trade-off because in some sense it's exciting the idea that maybe we could move to a place where people would be less restrained in how open they are but it it also is well i guess it's disconcerting to me just because in my lifetime the widespread conformity is something that i'm used to and moving quickly beyond that if the internet can enable that is somewhat disconcerting well by the way i think it is really important like you can't question everything. Again, like, yeah. I don't question whether the world is round or not. There, there are some beliefs you just need to have. Now, but you do need to be open to But data. if we can't come to a consensus about that as a society, like we come to, if we have these big rifts, like as open ideas, you know, profligate through society. I think if there was some good data about the world not being around, we should mm -hmm. be open to the fact that it isn't, yeah. right? And, you know, if like 
if there was some data that it was actually flat or something, or or it was round in the past, but now it's gotten flatter somehow, you know, <laughs> you know through gravitational pull or something, like. I don't know, like, I think we should be open to hearing about that and thinking about that. And, like, if some, like, credible or someone who we think is smart has that idea, like, be open to, like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Like, and then after you listen to me, like, I still don't agree. I still think it's round, <laughs> right? Like, but it's, like, that's kind of cool. Like, I'm, like, I love hearing about those types of things. Sure. But you can't, like, you can't, again, question. If you question everything, you become the Unabomber. And <laughs> that's this, right. Like, this is a very difficult, like, that's world right. to live in. And so you can't question everything, but I think you should question like some core things relatively often. And you also can't question everything all the time. So, you know, if you question like, let's say you question your core beliefs once a year is probably good. But if you question <laughs> them like every day, this could be like a real problem. One of the tragedies of the commons I see today that I think particularly regard to machine learning, I think you'll agree with me here, is that these public data sets are hard to access. We have this taboo around sharing medical data, for example. People get very caught up in concerns about health insurance rates that might change if their data gets de-anonymized. We also have these concerns about privacy. And people seem more concerned with those things than the potential upside that they could provide. There is this tension between the gains that we can make from open data and then the societal objections to that open data. How do you think these societal values will change with regard to data sets? Or what are your projections with how long that will take? Well, but I think these concerns are valid. They are, yeah. sure. So, I mean, I certainly don't want insurance companies making decisions about me or about <laughs> my loved ones based on my medical history or something like that. Or I certainly wouldn't want to get it out that, you know, I went to the doctor about a certain thing and, and get that out in the public and have people writing about it or, you know, my tax returns or something like that, making those public. It's not something like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a public official. I don't want my tax returns public. So there's lots of things that, like, I would personally want to keep safe. And I think the most people presumption is that they want to keep safe. And I think that's probably a good thing about society. I mean, I, like, even what I had for breakfast this morning is probably something I don't want people, by the way, it was oatmeal, but, like, I probably, now I'm, now I'm telegraphing that, but I want to be able to choose to telegraph that to people rather than, you know, someone else telegraphing it without my choice to people. And I, I think these are, I think these privacy concerns are incredibly real, and they should be real, and I think people should be very concerned about their privacy, and that I think we're going to have more and more applications to be able to protect our privacy. I think we're going to see more and more consumers thinking about privacy. And one of my kind of crazy beliefs about privacy is that I think old people like me, let's say like um, Gen Xers, care about privacy the least. I think Gen Xers care about privacy the least out of all the generations. Mm. And that the younger people, the millennials or the Gen Yers or, you know, Gen Zers or whatever we call them, they care about privacy way more than the Gen Xers. Hmm. And certainly, like, they change their privacy settings in Facebook a lot more. Now, maybe it's because they're more sophisticated about how they use Facebook, but they certainly use it a lot more. They've adopted other, like, privacy-centric social networks like WhatsApp or Snapchat much more than the Gen Xers. And so I think they, they do care about it quite a bit. Like my, I talk to like my, my nephews and nieces who are in high school and stuff that have like six Instagram accounts, <laughs> right? For they share them with different types of people. Right. And so they're well aware of like the different privacy implications of how they share it or what they're doing, et cetera. 
And so I think we'll see privacy on an upswing. I think there will be many more applications that people will care about. I think more and more people will use like applications like Secret to do their communications because they'll care about privacy. I think there'll be a lot of like really pro-privacy things that happen over the next 10 years. And so people, like there's this belief that there's this inevitability that like privacy is dead or get over it on the privacy front. I I don't think that's, I think there'll be this Mm -hmm. tension that happens for a very long time. And between that, and certainly if you're getting benefit, you may be willing to share. You're also like willing to share with certain actors, but maybe not other actors, depending on how you believe they're good stewards of your data. And I think it's incumbent upon all actors that have data to be really good stewards of that data as well. So you don't think that we necessarily need to have some changes in the norms in order to get to this place where we have enough data to do the kinds of productive machine learning that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. I think there's a lot of things we could be doing on the technology front to be better stewards on privacy. And so a lot of what I think about every day is how can I be a better steward of privacy? Mm -hmm. And I know that's a lot of what a lot of companies think about every day is how do we be better stewards on privacy? And I think this is this is a good thing. Yeah. Now there is tension, and I think this there's a real tension that we should be thinking about. But I don't think there's an either or. You can have utility uh, without privacy. Yeah, and I think this is also even true in, or with this, in this. There's this other like like public policy debate between like civil liberty and and security. Right. And I think this is kind of this false, false choice. Type, yeah. I think you could you can have both if you design it in the right way, and oftentimes. You have neither. There's this point where you can have neither too. This is the worst scenario when you have neither civil liberty nor security, right? And then the best scenario is you have both. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people design systems so you have neither. Mm. And so this, this is like always the worst place to be is to have the neither. Mm. You write that computers are not learning fast enough. What are the costs to our society if we don't get computers learning fast enough? Well, first of all, I think computers are learning like quite fast, and I think there's a lot of really interesting things that they are doing. But in a lot of the areas that they've been focused on are in areas where like data is available. And so in a lot of the areas that data is available, it's kind of interesting, like chess or something. It's kind of interesting, or even you know the financial market. It's kind of interesting, but I don't know it like really helps society. And the areas where the data is less available is often the areas where like we could help society a lot more and we could do things that are really, really beneficial to society. So like, you know, we mentioned this nutrition thing, like this is an area where like there is no data available. I don't expect there be uh, We know you had oatmeal. Yeah, we know I have oatmeal now, (laughs) but we don't know like what I had yesterday or the day before or et cetera. And so this is an area where, like, probably we're not going to make a lot of progress, and certainly we would be able to benefit a lot. We don't actually know, like, people think, talk about things like, is wine good for you? Like, we have no idea. Like, we don't even know if broccoli is good for you. We have no idea if broccoli is good for us. There's just no real good data to suggest that it is. Or I mean, it probably is. Like, I eat my broccoli. Like, it probably is. I wouldn't, like, t- tell your listeners to, like, just, like, go on a chocolate cake-only diet or something. It's probably not a smart idea. But, like, we don't have a lot of data to suggest that it is good for us. Yeah. I think as we get more data, and, you know, so nutrition is not an area that I don't expect to have a lot of 
advances in, in in the next decade. But there are a lot of other places where I think we can have advances in. And I think we can get at a lot of really interesting questions that have been vexing society for a really long time. And with more data, I think we could go do that. Mm. We've mostly been talking about how machine... Well, we have been talking about how machine learning affects things because we are, from the technical perspective, because we are technical people. This is also going to affect the blue-collar class. And in the near term, I can imagine a lot of jobs that are somewhere between a mechanical Turk and what an accountant does because there's these kind of mid-level knowledge, like things that are somewhere between the Turk-style tasks and knowledge work. These are things like like translation between two different languages or some abstract image identification. There's going to be a lot of these jobs because the human-in-the-loop computing is obviously necessary for training a lot of the machine learning models, at least in our yeah. current paradigm. How do you think this this blue-collar knowledge work is going to evolve, and is it going to be enough to sustain a lower-middle-income class? I think there's lots of creative destruction that's going to happen. If you're thinking, like, if you're someone who, like, cares about society, this is definitely something you should be thinking about and worrying about. I think there's some good things about it, but there's also a lot of bad things, a lot of displacement that's going to happen. I think there's a lot of people who've been writing about this displacement of, like, the blue-collar worker which I think there will be a lot, and there already has been. That has happened a lot from things like outsourcing already. So some of it's due to technology, but a lot of it's also due to like foreign competition to them or just kind of other types of things that have been happening there, but some with robots, et cetera. But I think we're also going to see a massive trend to displace the white-collar worker, the college-educated worker. And so I think we're going to see lots of college-educated workers who are going to be underemployed in the future. And the problem is it's really hard to predict which ones. And it's not just the college educated worker that has like the two-year college degree or even the four-year college degree. It could be the someone who has like the 10-year college degree. Yep. We're talking about like the radiologist, yeah. et cetera, who like literally studied for 10 years, who was top of their high school class, valedictorian in high school. Or the sociologist, yeah. the history professor. Yeah, it could be a lot of like really, really impressive people. The person like when you were in high school, you know, you're like, wow, this was the smartest person. They got all the best grades. They worked the hardest. They did everything right. Everything society asked for them. They didn't take drugs. They did all the things that, like, all the things, like, society is supposed to do. And now, all of a sudden, like, through no fault of their own, they just couldn't predict the future perfectly. They didn't know where computers were going. By the way, none of us know where the future is going. And they didn't pick the future going. And now, all of a sudden, like, this job that they were, like, incredible job that they were banking on yeah. that for decades and decades, decades was an incredibly good, stable job, now all of a sudden gets replaced through computers. And I think we're going to see lots of this happening. And now this person who was, you know, making in the top, you know, 10% is now making in the top 50%. You know, maybe they still have a job, they're still like relatively smart person, but like their entire life has to be changed about how they've been thinking about it. So I think we're going to see lots of this happening as well. And we're not, not enough people are talking about that. I, I do believe the blue-collar piece is really important, and we should be talking about that. And I think we are. I think this is now like a common thing in the lexicon. But this like white-collar, college-educated thing. And this is why like I think in society right now we're, like, we're trying to push people to go to college, quote-unquote, without actually having a plan for their future. 
and I don't think this is going to help things. It's now like if you have go to college and you spend four years college not working, you now have some sort of expectation of a much higher income, et cetera. And I don't know that you're going to have a higher income if you go to college, if you don't pick the good future path in the future. And it's of course, it's very hard to know what computers are going to do. So I think this is something we should be very worried about as a society because we're going to have lots of displacement that's going to happen. Hmm. And I think the lawyer is going to get displaced. The accountant will get displaced. The, a lot of med, people in the medical profession will get displaced. And so these are areas where if you were a parent, you'd be like pushing your kids <laughs> to go into and you'd be like so proud that your son or daughter became a lawyer and you'd be like bragging to all your friends and like and then it's possible that now this person is now going to be in the unemployment line because they picked that path. Mm. This gets at the question of narrow AI versus generalized AI which we've been discussing on a lot of episodes recently and we wouldn't think that if a computer can play poker and if a computer can take all the tasks of an accountant or a doctor it seems like this qualifies as generalized AI in some sense because in order to do all the tasks of a doctor, you perhaps have to have really good natural language understanding, you have to have good ability to communicate, you have to understand a large corpus of knowledge, and yet we keep repurposing that generalized AI term. Have you thought deeply about what your definition of generalized AI is? Do you think it's a false dichotomy between I, generalized AI and narrow AI? I don't. I don't spend too much time on the definitions. Okay. Like, I don't think... I don't. At least Not the way I think about it, I don't think we're going to be hitting like general AI for quite a long time. I think we're going to have these narrow things. And I think there's going to be a big role for humans to play in it. So I do think like the human lawyer is going to be working with software more. The human radiologist is going to be working with software more. In some cases, it's going to lead to displacement mm. because they're going to be out of their job. In other cases, they're going to just be a lot better at their job and they're going to end up being paying more. And so what's going to lead to, it's not like all the lawyers are going to go away. We're going to have tons of lawyers and there's still going to be a really good field to go into for some people. We're just going to probably have fewer lawyers and the ones that are there are going to get paid a lot more. And then there's going to be a lot of other people who are going to get paid a lot less. And so we're going to get these barbells that happen mm. way more often in all of these professions that happen out there because of some sort of narrow AI or machine learning or computers or whatever you want to call it. It's been going on for years. It's just now more apparent to people mm. than it was before. But it's not just AI. It could just be a tool like Excel or some sort right. of any tool that you could be using as you're going to have like getting people way, way more efficient. They're going to be able to take on more tasks, do more things, and then there, there may be need for less people. And as we lead to a globalized world, you're going to be able to, there's still maybe some people who are not sure about whether we're moving more and more to a globalized <laughs> world. But as you move to a world where you're going to, you can increasingly be competitive in many, many different markets because of technology. Mm. It makes sense that these winners are going to win really, really big, and the people who don't win are going to have much more difficult lives. I think we're even seeing this in software development. So in software development, there's been a tide which has lifted all boats. And so we're seeing salaries for all software developers rise, but we're seeing the rise of the best software developers grow at a much faster rate than the rise of the, you know, just the okay software developers. Yes. And so I think there's been this, there's this whole other kind of place in society where they're trying to get all these people to code and all these things to do. And I don't know that this is a smart move. I think hmm. this is a short-term good thing. You'll probably be able to get a job in the short term 
And so this might be a very good short-term thing, next five years, next 10 years, like seems like it's probably a good thing to be able to, it's probably a very good skill to have to be able to code. But long-term, it could, you know, you could have a scenario where like someone who's making a very good living, they're making $150,000 a year, they're making an incredible living. You could easily see that job go from 150 to 50. Hmm. And there may be something else they could have done, like, you know, repair trucks or something like that, become a mechanic where... Like they could have been making 100k, like you know, in between or something like that, and much more, where technology might have not been able to jump in as quickly. Okay, to wrap up, there's something that's kind of been pervading the conversation we've been having, and something that I see in my everyday life. There seems to be a growing gulf between technologists and non-technologists, or maybe you want to call it globalists versus non-globalists. How do you bridge the gap? there like when i'm talking to my friends who i went to high school with who seem anti-technology like the anti-uber narrative do you sense this in your everyday life and does it seem like a reality to you a growing reality i have not sensed that as much. i, I hmm. think there's a very pro-technologist strain i think people are yearning for more technology most people are using technology all the time, especially in the U.S. You're saying across the world? or oh, well, at least in the U.S. I mean, people are using it to, to get their entertainment. They're using it to get their groceries. They're using it to get their transportation. They're using it for, to get their education. They're using it to get their housing. So if you just think of like all the core things that we do and we spend money on, we spend our time on, like technology is pervading that and people are happy with that. Mm-hmm. Now... There is lots of problems because of the displacement that we talked about. And so I think we're going to see lots of displacement happen because of it. If you're only benefiting from it and you're not getting displaced, you like it. Or if you're getting displaced from one thing, but you benefiting from the other stuff, you like the other stuff, you don't like what you're getting displaced on or, you know, et cetera. So like if you're a truck driver, you might be worried about self-driving cars, but you love the fact that you can listen to your podcast while you're driving the truck, right? And so there's all of these like interesting tensions. And I, by the way, I think this is going to be true for all of us. All of us have the ability to get displaced. Every one of us, every one of our professions have the ability to get displaced. Some of us are going to be doing things like investing in ourselves, so we're less likely to get displaced. Some of us are going to be investing in regulatory things, so we're unlikely to get displaced. Some of us are going to be changing careers. There are all these different things that we're going to be doing. Or some of us are just going to be okay with getting displaced and like having a different type of life. Mm. So we're all going to, and this has happened over large periods of time throughout history. But in general, like, I think we're going to have, you know, we're spend more and more of our time in technology today. I mean, most of us already spend close to 100% of our waking hours like with technology. Oh, yeah. So it is a huge piece of time. It's already augmenting a lot of stuff that we're doing. People talk about augmented reality. Like we, already are, we already have that. It's already been a huge augmented thing. And it seems, and this might be where I'm like way too conventional in my thinking, so I probably should check my thinking. But like it seems like this is going to continue to happen. We're going to continue to have like technology augmenting our reality mm-hmm. in every single scenario and every single thing that we're doing in the future. Mm-hmm. Oren, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff.